0: Happening now, we'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 86, happening on February the 21st, 2018. Today is the first of two snow days that we are so excited to have here in central Oklahoma. My name is Wes Fryer, I am the director at the Cassidy School, joined as always by the amazing Jason Neifer, who I understand wowed and amazed, literally crowds of thousands recently at NCCE up in Seattle. Jason, how are you this evening?
1: I am well, Wes. Thank you. Where I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana. Well, actually, I'm joining you from Missoula. Mon- actually, I'm in Missoula. I'm joining you from Helena, Montana tonight, where I'm spending the evening anticipating a great meeting tomorrow with some folks in our state education office. And uh, regularly, I'm in Missoula, Montana, where I'm the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana digital Academy, the state virtual school located mm-hmm. in the university of Montana campus. And Wes is correct that I am fresh off of a great conference experience in Seattle, Washington last week. Um, uh, in particular, I'd like to give a shout out to Mr. Dan Rather, who gave an excellent closing keynote. Uh, I did not know that he is a graduate of a teacher college. And he had a very, very important, and important message about schools and teaching our kids to survive in a digital generation. And also um, related to kind of finding our way through the, the fake news world. And so I was very impressed by him and wasn't expecting to be as moved by his his uh, talk as I was. And um, there, I think there was a little bit of Twitter traffic about it. I think I had some decent presentation. So I'm glad to hear that uh, my thoughts uh, went over well. And of course, it was great to see all my friends from around the nation, uh, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, um, the Google, Microsoft folks that um, all do really great work providing uh, perspective for their teachers and students in their individual school districts. But this. The hour is not about uh, NCCE, although I could talk for the hour about it. We are in, uh, an educational technology podcast where we take a look at current headlines and kind of give you a little bit of an educational twist on what's going on. If you would like to find out more about the articles we're referring to, you're free to go to our website, techsr.com and take a look at our show notes, which feature every single link we talk about each week, and usually some extra as we tend to overplan our hour together. So, Wes, where would you like to start this evening? Well,
0: I think we'll end up talking quite a bit about uh, AI, the Russia probe, and Facebook, but I'd like to begin with Apple and the HomePod because I have been sort of universally well surprised at the universal negative reviews that I have pretty much mm-hmm. been listening to on different podcasts and shows. Most recently, uh, listened to the Twit this week in Tech podcast, which is always a favorite. And, you know, it's, it's linked actually to some of the things we'll talk about with AI, because one of the biggest disappointments, I guess, and, and I am not a HomePod user, um, you know, is how poor Siri is. And the way that Apple has marketed the HomePod as being a revolution in audio and, you know, it's just hearing. I I put a lot of credence in what Leo Laporte says about technology stuff. And when he says it just really sucks, I don't think anybody should buy one, you know, that really gets my attention. So it does seem to be a device for the absolute, you know, Apple loving Uh, crowd, and I actually, as I say this, Jason, you may be in possession of one, so I don't want to, maybe I need to Remove my foot from from my mouth here a little bit. Are are you a HomePod lover and you have kind of shown some cards in that you might you might feel I think um, just the the burden of your technology role uh, you know globally to be able to firsthand compare the HomePod to uh, Google's assistant and and our friend uh, Miss Queen A or whatever we're going to yeah.
1: call her. Yeah, the 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 A that should but not be named. Um, it's a good question yeah. and I've decided against this point going. With the home pod, and I think part of the reason why is that my understanding is the audio is is fairly good, although there is now a number of reviews to debate the quality of the audio there's apparently some um, interesting sensors inside the device that help it shape the audio based on the shape of the room and the size of the room. I think that's all very interesting it seems very appley to me that you plug it in and it just works to adapt itself to your environment, but I think the challenge is precisely what you're mentioning, Wes, that the uh, smart speaker in itself is not that big of a deal because there are wonderful hundred dollar Bluetooth speakers that can provide you a one speaker opportunity and get wireless access to a variety of mobile devices to play audio in your home. And no longer do you need to rely on a vendor like Apple to be able to do anything about that. So for me, the more interesting thing about the uh, home pod is whatever it can provide for internet of things, access or access to an intelligent personal assistant like Siri. And as we've discussed in the past, it's something I have some academic interest in. And I do think the reviews to talk about how limited Siri is, and also how it doesn't seem to be evolving very quickly in comparison to really uh, the other three of, uh, potential intelligent personal assistants that includes the google assistant now available on the google pixel book and in fact i had the opportunity to play around um, with a google pixel book this past week at ncce a shout out to simon miller um, in kellogg idaho who allowed me to take a look at his delightful pixel book something that's very much on my want list um, the Cortana, which is available on Microsoft phones, which means the two people that have those, you can use like Cortana. But also, all Windows 10 machines have access to Cortana, and of course, the Divine Miss A, the virtual assistant that shall not be named because then she will, you know, jump into your home. Um, as we mention, uh, dare to mention her name out loud, which is uh, obviously the market leader right now. So for me. Um, no, there's not a lot of temptation there. And, um, the, a lot of the articles, I think one that you had posted, Wes, said that if you really are interested in a high-end speaker, then the Google Max speaker, I think it's called, or Google Home Max would be the better option for you than, than the HomePod. So, um, and I know, Wes, you have gone in, is, is it Google Homes that you went in on, went in on at home?
0: Absolutely, we uh, we got four of them when they were thirty dollars. They're normally fifty, and this last weekend I actually had a chance to go up uh, to Kansas to visit my parents, and I brought one to them. And I was interested, Walmart, you know, selling them for fifty bucks, and Best Buy for forty because all of their, I guess, Google, maybe all Google products, anyway, all of the home products were discounted, you know, ten dollars. Uh, and it really is phenomenal. It it tangibly. Demonstrates and allows us to experience the march of artificial intelligence, which is a game changer, equivalent to fire and electricity, according to Sundar Pichai, you know, CEO of Google. And it is something that, yes, it is a kind of a card trick and a par, in a parlor trick. Kind of, ooh, wow, that's that's sort of funny. Look at that. Uh, but it's also a, a real game changer. And one of the things Leo Laporte mentioned in that Twit podcast, which, uh, which I'll link in the show notes, you know, was he thinks it's one of the best things ever for podcasters, right? To be able to say, Hey, G, or whatever you need to say to invoke your assistant, play me the latest edition of, you know, the EdTech Situation Room or the Twit podcast or Note to Self or whatever. I mean, Podcasts have been a little bit challenging and geeky to have to get, right? Because you had to have an app and you had to subscribe and you had to download, you know, multiple steps. Um it is still tricky to get the right words to to get your device to do just what you want, but that right there, this is the this is the classroom connection. That shows what one of the most important things in future in today's generation of future is going to be, and that is Asking the right question, because we have access today to unprecedented amounts of information and, and knowledge. And of course, I guess we make that knowledge when we process it in our brains, but unprecedented amounts of data and information. And we can not only filter and access, you know, through the keyboard and through the touch interfaces, but now with our voice and being able to tap into AIs, it is it is a game changer and I'm just really excited about it. So I think that I don't know. I'm not sure yet at school I've been tossing around some ideas of how we might be able to do some kind of a pilot project uh even with the Google Home um with some teachers that wanted to explore with that. But I just uh am, am really energized by it and uh, also <sighs> You know, I love Apple, and I love—I I, used my Mac. I mean, this is my my iPad. I was—I was reading on my iPad today. I love my my MacBook laptop, but Apple is losing its way with respect to innovation in many ways. I think it's the innovator's dilemma of Clayton Christensen. You know, Microsoft now that they shed. Uh, Balmer finally and under their new leadership, I think is doing some true innovation, but, but Apple really is at risk of losing its way and it's a hugely successful company. You know, the iPhone accounts for over 70% of profits, et cetera, et cetera. But when you look at artificial intelligence and you see where the market is going, I just don't understand why Apple shipped the HomePod when it's essentially not a functioning device in the way that we should expect it to work in an amazing magical Apple sense. The the HomePod from everything that I've heard about it and read about it is not magical. It it is a great-sounding speaker, but it's $350 and how many people do you know that are going to buy more than one of those, you know, for their house right. for listening? Probably not that many.
1: So, and yeah and i i've also been surprised about how universal the the um, criticism has been by the technology media, but i I think that the the theme that seems to weave through most of these reviews is that the audio itself is pretty good, although again that that seems to be debatable um, in the last seventy two hours There's been a lot of articles that seem to criticize uh, the audio in in the home pod, but also that Siri's just not functional enough to to justify spending the money on that device so um I, I, while we're, let's stick on Apple for a couple more minutes here. Um, I, I, there's a really great article from, a, a, I think it's a blog called The Overspill. And a gentleman by the name of Charles Arthur talks about um, his day uh, using, or his time using an iPad as his primary device. And the reason why this was really interesting to me, I read this on a day that I'm actually considering doing an experiment in a couple of weeks um, to see if I can spend the entire day doing my job on just my phone. And the reason why is that I've heard in, in three or four different conversations, in, in, in three or four different contexts in the last six weeks about people saying that, that they are abandoning, in some cases, their laptop, but definitely their tablet because they feel like their phone does enough for them to be productive. And I happen to have a conversation with a parent a couple of weeks ago that was curious why we don't recommend utilizing cell phones to take our classes at the Digital Academy. And I have a lot of good reasons for that, not the least of which is we still have some leftover flashcards content that doesn't work on a cell phone. But file management is a real struggle there. But this particular, uh, really, really well done and thoughtful blog entry talks about utilizing, I believe it was a 12-inch iPad, the 12-inch iPad Pro with a smart keyboard um, as a primary device uh, for utilizing... Um, uh, you know, day-to-day work in, in context of, of of a productive person, and included some coding too. I might add, which was a very interesting concept to me. And the reason why I think that's 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 an interesting piece. And by the way, the reason why he moved in that direction was his 2012 MacBook died on him. Trusty device died on him, so he decided, uh, you know, to to jump on the iPad as as a quick replacement alternative. Um, but it is interesting to me that you know, as people seem to be going from three-to-one devices down to to two-to-one devices, that the tablet is disappearing in some cases, or the laptop is disappearing in some cases, that the mobile device seems to be an, an applicable device um, for, for being able to be productive. And so I, I do want to spend a little bit of time thinking about can I, you know, utilize a phone entirely? And I have a couple tricks up my sleeve. The first one is that obviously I think I need to get a Bluetooth keyboard, which I, I have a couple of them of to be able to be productive. Uh, the second thing I think is that um, uh, Android phones. And I utilize an LG V 20 as my current Android phone. It's a year and a half old phone. And, um, the, that particular device allows you to plug in over what's called an OTG cable, um, a, a mouse device, a USB mouse device. So I can plug a, um, a USB hub into it and plug as many, um, devices as I want to into it. And then I also, um, uh, have a dock at home that utilizes, um, uh, display Display port? No, display something technology that uh, that is a U- over USB display technology, which means that I can plug the phone into a hub that would then provide me the ability to plug a monitor into it. So it would be really blown up and, you know, probably the resolution would be a, a, a little clunky. But, you know, I, I do want to experiment with that notion to see if a mobile device can be productive enough for me as an end user.
0: Absolutely, and we've talked before about the the Windows phones foray into that kind of innovation, where you can you could plug that into a full on HDMI monitor with keyboard and mouse, and have your whole. Desktop there. I'll mention at the Ohio Educational Technology Conference, which I had a chance to attend and, and share some ideas at this last week, I went to one of the Apple vendor sessions and had the most intense time of working on multitasking and using some of the new iOS 11 features, where you can have more than one app up at the same time, you can drag and drop content, you can even have three things up. And boy, that is a real game changer. And I mean, I, have struggled with the trackpad as far as the gestures and things like that, learning new things and all this fits into, you know, we, we tend to be creatures of habit and, and get comfortable in our routines. And so it, it's challenging to switch those up, but I, um, you know, I'm interested, I'm continuing to wanting to, to do more sketching and, um, I did learn at at OETC that there's a a big difference in the Chromebook um, hybrids that are both tablets and Chromebooks. The ones that, and you may know the name of this, Jason, it's, is it capacitive or active touch? It's the ones you can lay your palm on, like you know, kind of like you can the iPad and then not have the, you know, the ink, you know, take effect. I mean, it's recognizing, oh, that's your hand, knowing that it's not your pin. Is that, is it capacitive or is there a different term
1: for that? Or do you I know? think it's capacitive, but I'm not entirely sure.
0: It's what the term is on the iPad. Um, and it's why you have to have a capacitive, um, you know, stylus. Why, if you're doing gloves and you I did this for, I think, Christmas for the kids, you know, so they could use their phone when they had their glove on, you know, it has to work with capacitive devices so anyway yeah it's, i'll be I'd be very curious on how that how that works and you know a year or so ago, I was talking a lot at school about oh what devices are we going to refresh, and we ended up you know sticking with the MacBook Air with the standard u s b ports. Um, as we look at that for next summer and next year, I am continuing to eye some Chrome devices and, and devices that would give both functionality, right? If, if somebody would want to have both. I mean, the Chromebook is going to take care of over 90% of all the computing tasks of most of our, of our faculty. Um, in the case of some staff that are more into, you know, spreadsheets and things like that, that's not going to be the case. And certainly for our computer science and some of our other faculty, uh, you know, if they're using specialized software that runs on only Windows, um, for instance, for science labs and things, there's there's use cases out there. But anyway, it's it's something that I'm, uh, I'm looking more at. And I'll have to – I'll try to pull up um, the link, but I had a chance at OETC to – uh, learn from Eric Kurtz, who was just really quite the amazing, um, uh, Google, uh, knowledge house, uh, just, or just knowledge Yoda. And, uh, see if I can pull this up. The Acer Chromebook spin 11. That was the one that he was recommending as a, as a touch enabled Chrome laptop. So while Jason may go off and, and try the iPad only life, um, you know i'm wondering what the the chromebook only um with an enhanced stylus life might be like
1: yep absolutely um let's see there's some other interesting uh, kind of leftover apple news uh both of these are related to either trademark or uh, regulatory filings. Uh, there's some regulatory filings in Eastern Europe to suggest that there are two new kinds or, or models of iPad heading our way. And there's been a lot of rumor media about this um, including, and I, I have a hard time actually imagining this. I, I've seen some rumors about a thinner iPad that's in that kind of nine, uh, like nearly 10 inch form factor, perhaps new form factors to larger um, iPad pros, which is an interesting phenomenon. And I think that the likelihood in, in my mind is that the larger iPads will continue to have some downward pressure in price, and so that is an interesting phenomenon. And then I would also mention other, in other news that it looks like, um, Apple is working on some, uh, functionality in, in the Apple TV that suggests it's going to be more of a gaming device. And so there's a lot of folks that have mentioned that the, uh, current generation of Apple TV is wildly overpowered, um, in comparison to, um, you know, what it does because it doesn't really require a ton of processing power to, uh, utilize the apps that are there. Um, and so it may be at some point a greater, uh, play towards a, kind of a, an alternative gaming device to the gaming consoles that, that are popular, the PlayStation and, um, the Microsoft Xbox. So anything interesting to you there, Wes?
0: Well definitely on the Apple TV side the on the mirroring side right that's one of the the places Apple continues to be so um you know enterprise friendly relative to Google and Chromecast is with AirPlay, Uh, the need, and I'll say it that way, the need we have today to be wireless in our projection and being able to be anywhere in a classroom with a device and, and being able to have multiple people share things up on the screen, I really think that is you know, a hallmark of a uh, 21st century blended technology classroom. So I'm I'm very interested to watch that. Apple added the feature here in the last few months where you can now manage Apple TVs with your mobile device manager. We haven't taken that step yet. Of course, that also means additional licensing costs that you're going to incur on a yearly basis, just like you do for, you know, other, other iPads and devices that you have Um, but yeah, I'm definitely curious to see how that continues to morph. And it's interesting because the Apple TV is certainly not marketed at the enterprise. It is a consumer product. It is focused on, you know, the, the home in terms of, you know, can, can we enable people to, I think be cord cutters and, you know, enjoy content more on a la carte basis. Um, and, and the gaming world and gaming, um, industry is is gigantic and so you know they've wanted to dabble in that and and we've actually we have a controller that we have played with a little bit with a few games we don't tend to have lots of mad gamers running around our house a lot that are you know, super into that, but it will be, it will be interesting to see what they can do and if it can move from beyond a hobbyist, you know, into something that has more mainstream adoption. But hopefully Apple's going to continue to pay attention to the enterprise and certainly the ability to manage the broadcast traffic and the ways in which all of that wireless traffic happens at, at school is pretty, pretty important. So shout out to Peggy George who has joined us after a nap. Peggy. We're glad that you're here after our week hiatus of, uh, of being off. So it's good to be back.
1: Okay. Well, let's take us now. I'd like to talk a little bit about some Chrome news. And one of these is, uh, let me do the the second one first. One of these is not a huge deal, but it is interesting in this development. um, Last week at NCCE, I did a session on my Chrome, um, my Chrome OS list, which is the list that I maintain along with uh, my uh, partner in crime at the Digital Academy, Mike Agustinelli, on web based alternatives and Chrome app alternatives to popular desktop software on PCs and Macs. And during that session, one of the things that I talked about there as an advocacy point and something that I received a lot of great feedback on is that we really need um, Chromebook manufacturers to consider if there is is a way to find a middle ground somewhere between the dirt cheap Chromebooks that have slow processors and low resolution screens and just two gigabytes of memory and the $1,700, $1,500, $1,000 Chromebooks that are very high end and beautiful devices, but are probably out of reach for a lot of school districts that, that need to buy something a little more cheaply. And as an example of that, um, Chrome Unboxed has announced that uh, Asus is finally releasing their C302, which is their extremely popular Chromebook model um, that is the, the flip that allows you to, you, to use the, the full hinge to turn it into a tablet mode. Um, and it's announced its M7 addition to that, which includes 16 gigabytes of RAM. And um, it is under $1,000 and has somewhat similar specs as the high-end uh, Chromebook or Chrome Pixelbook, which is the the current high-end champion on both price and 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 uh, speed and functionality, and that's from the good folks um, at Google itself. And the reason why I think this is interesting is that I expect the price to go down here in a few months, and you might be able to pick up one of those great high-end Chromebooks for six or seven hundred dollars, as opposed to the nine hundred a thousand dollar price tag that seems to be accompanying that device right now. And so, on the odd chance that a or a an industrial designer from a Chromebook manufacturer is listening to the podcast this week, um, I would implore you that there is a good middle ground, I think, between the low-end Chromebooks and the high-end Chromebooks. I think it's a $400 to $600 price tag. It maybe has an i3 chip in it, or one of the M3 chips, the new low-power um, high-speed Intel chips that has 8 gigabytes of RAM or 16 gigabytes of RAM, as opposed to 4 and 2. And I think there's a middle ground there where it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a super uh, high-end display, a 4K display or anything like that. But you could provide a higher definition experience with a slightly faster chip and a little more RAM somewhere in that middle ground to try to, you know, uh, be a useful piece for more power users. And then also those that, you know, do put their devices through workouts. So again, uh, Asus releasing their high-end C302 Chromebook this week. Um But I think the more interesting article comes to us this week from, again, Chrome Unboxed. Uh, this is from today. And it talks about how there seems to be some evidence that Google is going in the direction of PWAs, or progressive web apps. And what progressive web apps are is they're essentially a web-based app that sits inside of a container Um, that runs like a more traditional desktop app. And the reason why this is interesting is because first Chrome has moved away from the notion of Chrome apps. You can still get them um, on your, uh, Chromebooks, that's still an active, uh, architecture, but they've depreciated those, um, on PCs and Macs. So if you are a Chrome user and we're utilizing those web apps, um, they, they've started the process of eliminating those, access to those in, in, in that structure. But basically, um, there seems to be some, some thought here that, Chrome could be made very extensible, not by just Android apps, although Android apps have provided a great functionality with Chrome OS, but rather there could be something here... Uh, you know, related to providing desktop like app structure and functionality, but in something that's delivered you know, via the internet to the device. And what's interesting to me about this is that not only is Chrome going in that direction, it seems also that the Microsoft Store, which is available on Windows 10, including the more scaled back Windows 10 S devices, meaning that a developer could develop one progressive web app and have it utilized on Chromebooks in Windows 10 devices. And I also presume, you know, utilizing the Chrome browser um, on a Mac or, or PC. So uh, it's very interesting. And this notion, you know, there was there's a lot that, that went on regarding this with HTML5 several years ago. Um, probably the most famous use of that was that Facebook at one point developed an HTML5 app and utilize the same app across every architecture. And they discovered that they were actually better off going back and developing native apps on Android and iOS because it was faster and uh, seemingly more compatible with the individual devices. But it's interesting to me, they seem to be going in that direction. So are there progressive web apps in your future, Dr. Fryer? I
0: think so. Um, You know, this is a sign of the continuing maturation of the web. On a personal note, uh, this keynote in Ohio was my first, you know, big keynote to go ahead and just use my Google Slides straight up. And so uh, I've been doing that with lots of presentations. But you know at this particular conference I wasn't driving my mouse it was I had a clicker but there was somebody else there but hey we we got through it it all worked and I was just reading another article and I don't think I even shared it or or can find it but it was talking about Gmail and the things that are inside your mail app and just how much you know the web is uh I guess being able to, that that had to do with Google's amp tech technology right where they um taking a version of, of people's websites and I think, you know, kind of stream streamlining them a bit. Um, but it had to do with people living in their email inbox a lot more. Maybe I can find that article um and it was was talking about, you know, how Google is investing in that. We we may think of some of us may think, oh, emails, this old technology, but you know, really it's become one of the most ubiquitous means of communication, but we need to, to get better at how we are able to filter it and use it, et cetera. So I thought that was interesting. And it's it seems like it's a little bit along the same lines because it's content that's going to be inside, you know, email messages inside the Gmail app. And I think it has to do with the interoperability and those kinds of technologies. So that's a new term for me, PWA. I will have to say that a few more times before I can roll
1: off the tongue. There you go. Okay, where to next, sir? Uh,
0: I think I'd like to talk a little bit about the article you put in uh, as far as the shooting in um, Florida. Um, this is Recode, the aftermath of the Parkland mass shooting. Exemplifies the ugly side of social media. This is from February 20th. Uh, and if you want to talk a little bit about it, my comment would be I was flying back from Columbus, Ohio, when all that went down. So I was sitting in the airport, chilies, and part of me was also just saying do not show that video. Do not. I know that somebody shared that on, on YouTube or Instagram and, uh, gosh, it's, um, you know, part of the, part of the challenging environment that we live in, right. Is of course, we're all going to be glued to our televisions when a horrific event like this happens, but you know, what are the boundaries and how much is going to be shown and and all of that. So, you want to comment on this Recode article? Sure.
1: So, the Recode article talks about the notion of the kind of aftermath of of, of that that terrible shooting. And I got to say, I feel somewhat lucky last week in that I was so engaged with the NCC conference that I had really no time to engage in in, in uh, social media during part of that process. I did have a long talk with my wife. We're both very saddened by this. Um, and yet another um, uh, you know terrible, terrible tragedy in an American school. But um by the time I was able to really re-engage with uh kind of non professional social media, again, a lot of the kind of ridiculousness had died down. But social media became a very um a, a very um uh a fertile ground for conspiracy theories, for wild accusations, uh for fake accounts, um by both um the uh The uh, accused shooter and uh, victims um, of of the tragedy, uh, including those that perished and those that didn't and um, uh, terrible memes came into place. uh, some very terrible things were said by adults, uh, during this process, like the not, you know, fake anonymous adults, but, you know, actual real adults, um, aimed at all sides of the situation. And of course, because it has to do with, you know, one of the two or three most controversial political issues in the United States that gun control, um, it, it fired up that, that debate as well. And I think that, you know, um, I, I think I can speak for both me and, and Wes to say that we both are strong believers in the power of having a platform to publish um, having a platform to speak your mind, having a platform to get worldwide audiences. But that always comes with the cost that, you know, the lower the barrier is to, to publish to a wide audience, the more likely it is that someone who has less than a positive message, um, you know, is, is going to be provided a, a, an amplified microphone to do so. So I, I, you know, I, I, I still believe we're in the midst of a technology correction, right, that we're going to find some middle ground here or at least swing back and forth for a little while. But I think this situation and that aftermath certainly highlights the need for for reconsidering how some of this works.
0: And that's going to be a great segue to where I'd like to go. I want to talk a couple AI articles, but then get into uh, Russia, Facebook, social media, bad actors and talk specifically about that because we are, we have not figured out and really need to figure out better how we can avoid the very destructive and polarizing and fracturing, you know, influence of, of, uh, voices through social media, you know, in, in situations like this, as well as elections. But I want to do a, a shout out to a BBC news article that we've had in the notes for a couple of weeks. And now sort of when, when articles don't get talked about, sometimes they'll, they'll percolate and kind of remain up for a little while. In uh, this one, BBC news, t- January 24th, UK prime minister seeks safe and ethical artificial intelligence. And we've mentioned numerous articles in the show before about this. And in fact, I think I'm going to get to give a chapel talk at our school in May on the subject of ethics and artificial intelligence and raise, you know, these kinds of issues because there are many, many circumstances where, you know, we, we've heard, we've heard these stories about the algorithm takes on the biases or the prejudices of, of the programmers. And there are, there are lots of different issues not just, you know, killer robots and, and the idea of, of, um, you know, whether or not you should give, uh, a robot the autonomous ability to shoot and kill other people. There's a ton of other things. And so this is talking about the arms race that the U.S. and China are engaged in right now for, for AI. Uh, the one part of the article is subtitled, unthinkable advances. Um, you know, the UK's leadership for its health, uh, there's a, an a i related company's been created in the country every week for the last three years, and you know the speed at which this stuff is happening and and really i I want to give a shout out to you, Jason, and the show like I do not think I would be as attuned to this as I feel like I am because of our weekly shows and our discussions about this and it you know it's this it's, it is such a, a rapidly changing landscape and it's so important that we, we end up talking about these issues and, and that we also, you know, take a look at our programs that are preparing coders practically for, you know, the world and, and include ethics in there. And then the next article that's related to this is from the New York Times Magazine on February 12th and it's called the great AI awakening. Uh, and this is a long read. So it's, uh, well, and I guess did I missed. Cause that's a, huh? Yeah. I, Huh? I have the wrong date on that. This is actually, it's December, 2016. So this is an older article. Um, but this is the story of especially Google translate and how phenomenally better Google translate was once machine learning and artificial intelligence was unleashed. And this explains, you know, some of what we've heard Google and others talk about with this AI first mindset and the way that they're leading with that. So, uh, Jason, how will ethics and AI play into the Montana Digital Academy, or will it at some point?
1: well, I, I think it has to and and I think part of the pressure that that is is the case is that you know we we rely on data, big data in that you know large pieces of data in our program in order to make program decisions, and as that becomes a more automated process. One of the things that, that I, I'm very uh, cognitive about is that you know, we deliver instruction, instruction digitally, but you know, we have to remember that there are humans at both ends of the equation here. We have human students, we have human teachers, I am a human administrator, um you know, and that that has to always be part of this process and you know once in a great while um it 's not as common as maybe it used to be as my teachers become more savvy is that you know with, there have been times when you know the data shows one thing and it it just defies logic that 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 data might be correct and there's usually there's all, always a logical explanation about why data may be misreport, but you know we Uh, when you talk about ethics, I think part of what to me is important as an education professional that happens to be a technology enthusiast is that, you know, we remember that the point of all this is to educate humans, right? And so that has to be at the core of, of all this process. But um, you know, I'm, I'm extremely interested in, in, in this. And I, and I, I would also thank you, Wes, for the opportunity each week to kind of talk through these issues because it's, as I'm sure clear to our audience, neither of us have answers here. But I think as we keep posing questions and keep scratching our head about this, this is a critical part of, of, of discourse. And if you're not already talking about this and we're talking to you, you know, teacher nerds, right? Like, um, you folks need to be talking about this with one another as well. Because that, it, it's not, it, it's sometimes even hard where to start the conversation, but it's going to be upon us more quickly than we ever imagined.
0: And one place, I, I think I have mentioned this on the show, but the, the, I know I mentioned the website at our school. We have a website, uh, digsit.us. And so questions relating to digital citizenship, which are wide ranging are on there with short videos and, and questions. But there's also a contribute link and there are several different Articles and videos um, that I've put on, and I hope others will will put on, because there's a a Google forum where you can submit these, you know, for things that we need to be talking about. Um, One of them is an article about, you know, top top ten ethical issues facing science in 2018, and these kinds of things. And so there's really important overlap, and and sometimes in the realm of technology, perhaps we tend to think of ourselves a little more siloed. About here are the steps, here are the procedures, you know, here's the capability of what the can do, but really, you know, technology, as as you said, Jason, as far as you know, learning, it is it is a servant of the the goals of learning and the goals of individuals as well as organizations. And so, I think that bringing those conversations about digital citizenship and about ethics uh, is important. So, I want to, if I could, go ahead and take us to this uh, Russia and Facebook discussion. Um, phenomenal, phenomenal article. Like I, I can't recommend this one highly enough. This is Wired Magazine, February twelfth, 2018. Inside the two years that shook Facebook and the world. This is a long read, um, but this really does a great job of breaking down with a timeline what has happened inside Facebook and what's happened more broadly in our society with social media as we look at the platform and the huge influence that Facebook has become. Um, I like the the quote that they had here about um, this guy. Fear now he was fired. He was a contract worker um, who was working for Facebook before they actually turned the newsfeed over to be wholly controlled, really, by an algorithm by by folks in Seattle. And so um, he was let go along with others on that team. And they say in that saga fear now plays one of those obscure, but crucial roles that history occasionally hands out. He's the Franz Ferdinand of Facebook who you'll remember was the archduke of uh, Serbia that was assassinated to start world war one or maybe or uh, continuing the quote, or maybe he's more like the archduke's hapless young assassin either way. in the rolling disaster that has enveloped Facebook since early 2016 fear now leaks fear now's leaks probably ought to go down as the quote screenshots heard around the world. So for those of us who are social studies and history folks uh remembering the American Revolution you know thinking about screenshots heard around the world interesting um a couple other quotes that I'll share from this um from this article um, let's see Dead space on the on the show. Um, Online interacting with people is positively correlated with a lot of measures of well-being, whereas passively consuming online content is less. So one of the things that's happened here is the the Facebook, you know, former employees, Tristan Harris and some others that have started this Center for Humane Technology, you know, uh, are being listened to by Zuckerberg and by others, and there are changes now afoot in what Facebook says they're going to do with the feed. They're going to de-emphasize, you know, publication of, of news articles from those those pub- those publishers. Emphasize interactions with your um, with your friends, with your family. Um, they say a, a social network that records only clicks, not subscriptions is like a dating service that encourages one night stands but not marriages. I thought that was a pretty good quotation and you know um and I said that, this is also great. every publisher knows that at best they are sharecroppers on facebook 's massive industrial farm <laughs> so we we've we 've talked before about how <clears throat> you know facebook controlling i think like 75 percent or something like that of news traffic and just having this huge, huge power, you know, has made a lot of people angry. Um, but they, you know, Zuckerberg, according to the article, is thinking long term, not just about next next uh, quarter's profits or this quarter's profits. But, you know, what will happen to journalism? What will happen to news um and the role that Facebook is is playing and continues to play. I mean, just, uh, was it last weekend, I think, that a Facebook executive had tweeted some things that then President Trump and, and other conservatives picked up on as kind of an exoneration of, of them and the Russia probe saying, oh, look, see, the ad spend was really low uh, by Russia, you know, before the election. And and so they weren't trying to throw the election. Actually, I haven't read the 38 pages of the, the Mueller indictments for these 13 or whatever Russians, but you know that's their conclusion that russia absolutely wanted to subvert the election as well as promote division and fractured you know society in in the united states back to the article that you had shared jason following the shooting in florida and so um i just thought this was a was a great article that put a lot of pieces together in terms of a timeline and um you know how how is facebook jason going to deal with bad actors because that's really one of the biggest issues it they 've created a platform where anyone who wants to you know advertise and get their message out and pay for that you know can do it in an incredibly laser targeted method so I know that you have that answer you've just been waiting until you can put it into your dissertation to show it to the world so
1: yeah you me? so the cat's out of the bag you know the thing I reminded of when I hear you talk about that Wes is that um, you know, for, for 15 years now, we've been putting up with the shocking cesspool that is newspaper comment sections. Right. And over and over and over again, we acknowledge that, that, that other than, you know, adding a barrier to anonymity, uh, for example, forcing you to log into a Facebook account to comment, we really have no way of dealing with the cesspool that's there. Right. And, And some people argue that it's really, you know, that, 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 People's criticism of that is overblown. That's just kind of a boiled down democracy. Um, I led a campaign in in my town of Missoula to uh, attempt to have uh, my local paper get rid of, of of comments there. And although I don't think my campaign was the the, the trigger there. It- it ultimately did get rid of comments and had responded back to a number of us that had contacted the editors and local publishers of that newspaper directly because I wasn't able to go on anymore and really have a, a, a good experience with their newspaper because of the comments. Um, I, I mean, I, I have a lot of faith that there are smart people at Facebook. I wish that they had put that smarts into, you know, well before the 2016 election. I think there was very visual clues that Facebook was becoming a, an environment that was, you know, less than productive to democracy um but i i don't know what the answer is but i have a suspicion that you know we invented this this terrible technology that's led to you know people to to have real problems with anxiety um and and you know give voice to uh trolls that want to impact our democracy i think that those same people can hopefully you know, figure out a way to, uh, to deal with that. Um, I do want to note that there was another interesting article today related to Russia, and I think I put it in um, that same location. Um, it is, I thought I put this down there, but Facebook has announced that one of the ways they're going to deal with anonymous accounts um, that is the, uh, you know, kind of the, the tool of trolls is they're going to now do postcard verifications for new uh, new advertiser accounts. And, um, you know, a lot of people... You know, report on that a, a bit tongue in cheek because, you know, that's kicking it real old school. You know, that's a uh, Pony Express old school, um, to help verify accounts, but it is a very effective strategy to make sure that people are geographically, you know, where, where they're, uh, you know, purport to be before they're allowed to put advertising on Facebook. And I think strategies like that, you know, are, you know, again, a little old school, but I think are a very good start.
0: Well, they're trying um, the other article there from the New York times on February 19th on Russia, Facebook sends a message it wishes it hadn't that's a, referencing the executive that that tweeted on his own. Um, that got picked up by Trump. You know, it's, it's saying that a well-financed campaign, like what we saw from Russia in the, in the 2016 election is going to be able to bypass that. Right. I mean, they were able to hire, you know, people to, to dress up and and be on floats that, you know, Look where there was a jail, and someone was looking like hillary Clinton and yeah. they were able to do things you know face to face and and so i'm i 'm glad to see them dealing with it, but the thing that I got from um, from the Wired article as well as from this New York Times article is that the Facebook executives really were slow in recognizing how their platform was being co-opted. And they've also been so reticent. We've talked about this on the show, right? The, um, oh, what's the name of the, of the law. It's like the, the, uh, the decency, the communications decency act, maybe of 96, something like that. It says that the, the platform, you know, and the ISPs, they're not held liable for content as long as they're not, you know, being the publisher of the content and discerning what they should publish and what they shouldn't. Facebook is now moving into that arena, uh, to a degree. And so it's going to be very interesting to see how that all, you know, plays out, uh, legally. This was a good quote from that New York Times article in real world, real world terms, a part of the face uh, of, of Facebook still sees itself as the bank that got robbed rather than the architect who designed a bank with no safes and no alarms or locks on the doors and then acted surprised when the burglars struck. And, and so this is where there are some fundamental questions about, you know, how will Facebook discern bad actors and how will there, there's some, I guess, tools now for people trying to, to upvote or downvote you know news and things that or are links and things that you think are not viable that they're you know that they're fake news et cetera. we really we're in for this man i mean i didn't i don't think we have the the article but uh just in the last week or so, uh, I saw that there's a new technology. I'll, I'll get it. Well, maybe we can put it in the show next week. Um, basically, that will take anybody's face and put it on full motion video. And so from, for instance, a pornography standpoint in terms of how to discredit people and enemies or or you know, um, uh, celebrities, and just in order to believe stuff, I mean – there was something in these articles where they were talking about in terms of Photoshopping, they were at one point trying to look at, uh, and I don't know if this was Facebook or Twitter. You know, how can they, can they determine if a if an image was photoshopped and then rule that out? And is there a way to do that? I'm sure AI is going to have a role to play in all of this, but gosh, it really is a wild west. And I don't think I foresaw at all the mainstreaming of this kind of conversation about fake news. And this is just this is not something that's going to go away. Because it's not unique to this administration or I mean, we're we're seeing a lot more of it because of of, uh, you know, tweeting executives and things like that. Right. Um, but I uh,
1: go well, ahead. One political note to make about that is that if if uh, Hillary Clinton won the election, Um, Although I don't think it would have been as extensive, I I, I do think that there there would be an investigation right now about Russian influence in the election because it it appears that it was very real. But the other piece of it is, too, is remember that there was a lot of social media hand-wringing over the Democratic primary for president in the United States in 2016 as well. And I think it's easy to dismiss this as pro-Trump, anti-Trump. When in reality, that all the evidence in the world was that social media was used in ways that no one envisioned it. I mean, you go back to 2008, 2012, and the very effective way that the Obama campaigns utilized technology uh, for grassroots organizing. Well, the same power in that technology also exists inside of social networks. And don't assume That, you know, the power is only going to be used for good. And so part of what we have to do broadly in society is have discussions about ethics and the way to utilize these technologies for good. And if we, we don't, you know, please don't mix this up as, as just about you know Trump or not Trump, because that is so. Um, I, I think dismissive of the broader issue of the role these tools play in both right. politics and our society.
0: Absolutely, and in one of the things that the, the Facebook article brings out is how Facebook was being criticized as because of um, alleged censorship of some some uh, conservative perspectives. You know, and if, if Facebook they were concerned about weighing in too heavily, you know, on on one side or the other. Because Because they were gonna be, you know, criticized as throwing the election. So I mean that's I I don't know. I just don't think they they really realized how incredibly powerful and influential they were going to become in terms of how people get their information and share information. And so, you know, we're we're wringing our hands about this saying, gosh, if we'd only thought about ethics and Yes, we could have, but I don't I – don't, these seem to be unintended consequences. I don't know yeah. that all of this could have been foreseen. And even if everybody on the design team at the beginning days of Facebook would have had a, a nice briefing and, and had a class on ethics, I don't know. I'm not sure the degree to which they could have, have changed all this. But it reminds me – I've been listening to some different podcasts, and this, again, is not about just Trump and the, and the political – uh, headlines of today, but there's a, a new book uh, called How Democracies Die by Steven Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. And I've heard them on several podcasts talking about this. And, you know, part of what they're talking about is a fractured, you know, electorate and, and you know, the, the ways in which um, outlier voices can be polarizing and how challenging it is to have a very diverse and multi-ethnic republic and to, you know, gov to govern and to have consensus and, and all of that. And so anyway, I, I just think these are, these are really big issues that we're working out now that we don't, we don't have answers to. Um, and we need, for folks to, you know, to, to, to step forward and, and see what, how we're going to be able to not only apply algorithms, but, you know, other, other things to your point, Jason, even just about the, the comment section in the local newspapers, right? How, how are, you know, is AI going to play a role in that and, and be a, a savior for that? Or is there going to be some other way to address it? We need to be able to have civil discourse with each other. And I'd say this too. We need chances for students in, in school to practice, you know, civil discourse and and again not to just say hey that's that stuff you guys just do out there in the world we don't have anything to do with that how do we recognize we're responsible for the things we say online digitally as well as face to face and you know how how can we, we wrestle with this to to be able to listen to others you know to develop empathy and there's a whole whole lot of layers to all that but some of it comes into the the arena of digital citizenship and those are good conversations that we can be having with kids and um, we can also be finding ways with uh, with Minecraft, which is one of the great sessions I went to in Ohio, you know, having interactive spaces where students are interacting with each other. And we have different discussions about being civil with each other and the rules that we follow and accountability and those kind of things. Yep, Absolutely true. Any other okay. articles
1: you'd like to hit before we geek of the week it? Um, do, 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 do. I'll just do a quick one. Uh, TechCrunch noted today that uh, Intel, picking up on a story we previously reported on, um, Intel is re-releasing their Spectre patch uh, to patch up that vulnerability in CPU hardware, and I think we had mentioned a little bit uh, a few weeks ago, but the first round of those patches that were released, particularly on Windows machines, were t- Terrible, terrible, terrible pieces of code. So not only is there some report that's a much more stable patch, but apparently there's also um, less slowdown with some of the newer patches for that vulnerability as well. So look for that um, from your hardware manufacturer sometime soon.
0: All right. Sounds good. Well, I will share my Geek of the Week first, and it is... Twitter Moments. I had not played with this. I had seen, you know, underneath your uh, profile or anybody's profile for Twitter, you'll see tweets, following, followers, likes, lists. But if you've created one of these, you'll also see moments. And I have been mourning the death of Storify, which is a great website that allows you, for instance, after a conference like NCCe or or OETC, you can take your tweets and and those of others. And very readily, you know, with a hashtag search, pull those in, you know, order them by uh, time or or another order that you want. And so anyway, a Twitter moment is like that as well. And so I guess it's been out since 2016. I put a link to an article from the Buffer blog. Everyone can now create Twitter moments. Here's all you need to know. And uh, This was actually from September of 2016. But basically, you're able to, again, like Storify, search for a hashtag uh, search in your own Uh, profile, look for other user accounts, and then you can order those things and have them saved in an archive. And that archive is a link that you have, and it can also be embedded. And if you have a really long one, it won't embed everything. It'll embed a bunch and then, say, click here to see the rest of it. So I have an example from this past Monday when we had a professional development day and had a wonderful um, session by David Mokel, whose Twitter hashtag is ApplyAttention. And his uh, day-long session was called Mindful Self-Regulation the practice of well-being and lifelong learning. And so anyway, I was excited to find a way to archive my tweets because that is generally the way I like to uh, process my learning and also share it as well. Have you played with Twitter moments before, Jason?
1: I have not. I've seen the the feature utilized, but that's a great introduction. I look forward to playing with that. That's a sweet, sweet tool. Okay. I'd like to also share an interesting tool that I just read about the other day and, and it is now finally available for download if you don't mind sideloading an app until it becomes officially available. This particular app is it's a Google app, so it's developed by Google itself. This app is called Reply, um, and it takes advantage of something that um, has been kind of integrated into the Gmail app on Android anyways, which is uh, kind of a – not quite automated replies, but – um, based on reading the email with, with artificial intelligence, Google um makes a suggestion of quick replies you can make to email inside the app. But that's not what reply does. Reply is a, an app you install that plugs into other messaging apps on your Android phone and in the notification shade puts suggested replies to things like text messages um, that you might receive. Uh, so for example, um the, the one that, that that happened earlier today was that um my wife had you know texted me wondering if I had made it to Helena and I all I to do is pull down the shade of my messaging app and one of the um, one of the suggested replies was yes just got here so it 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 probably didn't figure out by location that that's the case but based on the did you make it yet question it suggested replies and so it plugs into several messaging apps including hangouts uh, uh, the actual stock SMS message app in Android. And based on my use earlier, earlier I'm a Textra user is my uh, SMS app of choice on Android. And uh, apparently it also works with Textra. So that's Reply by Google. It will be officially released soon, but you can sideload the app from the APK download, which is, by the way, completely safe to do. And there's instructions uh, to do so you know, elsewhere on the internet. So that's the Reply app, uh, a very effective and powerful way to use simple AI um, inside, um, of the Android phone universe.
0: And I am dropping the link to Textra SMS as a new Android user. I'm interested in your app recommendations, Jason. So I'll drop that in. And I will say that reminds me of a note to self episode where they were talking about, you know, the creepy side of, uh, of technology where people are creating these, these bots that possibly could continue right after the death of someone. And because they have you know, used AI machine learning to take in all of your tweets and all of your blog posts and and all of your texts, they they could share very, you know, accurate kinds of responses and you could even carry on a conversation. So I wonder how many years it will be before we actually have, you know, AI bots good enough to say, okay, you're running my email now, <laughs> you know, go ahead and reply. And I'll say, I need that right now. I need, you know, an AI bot that can efficiently Uh, You know, just just like you might have if if you had an assistant working for you, you know, filter stuff, reply to the stuff you need to, you know, save the things and then, you know, give you a hopefully much smaller list of messages that require individual attention and responses that you couldn't just, you know, figure out would be yes, thanks or, you know, something, something simple. So, Jason, where can folks find you when they're not listening listening to you with uh with bated breath here on the edtech situation right now.
1: Well, um, I'm on Twitter. It's my primary professional social media preference at Tech Savvy Teach. Um, I also contribute to the Tech Savvy Teacher blog from the Northwest Council for Computer Education blog. Ncc. Org, and I'm pleased to announce that it is unofficially completed. But I'm going to be releasing another Tech Savvy Teacher list, and this one is classroom safe image sources. And I've noticed in the last uh, couple of years that there are now wonderful archives available with royalty-free, uh, copyright-free um, uh, images that if you are a presentation maker and don't wanna rely on Google Images or other more nefarious locations to pick up images to create, make great presentations, that's a great place to do so. So um, I will release that on the Tech Savvy Teacher blog. Again, blog.ncc.org. What about you, Wes?
0: So I am W. Fryer on Twitter. As I mentioned, the DigCit website is one that I'm continuing to build, especially with some presentations for parents as well as parents and students. Um, had a chance to share two different sessions at OECC up in Columbus on digital citizenship, sparking conversations with uh, parents, students, and teachers, and then also one on surveillance, privacy, and digital citizenship. So lots of stuff from the edtech situation room found its way in there. But my main blog is speedofcreativity.org. To longtime subscribers, I've probably shocked them with uh, like three posts or something like that, including a podcast in the last week. I was rather rather prolific, um, but uh, generally I'm sharing the most on Twitter. And would also uh, encourage people if you don't already to uh, check out the Flipboard magazine that I curate, you can go to flipboard.com slash at w Friar, uh, which is my Twitter, and there's nine different magazines, and there's only a couple of them that I really update a lot, but iReading is the main one, but Definitely add to the digital security um, magazine, and then there's one on surveillance, privacy, and those related issues. So we are the EdTech Situation Room. You can find us at edtechsr.com. Please subscribe to us in your favorite newsfeed or aggregator if you use such a tool. And if you're on Twitter, follow us on EdTechSR. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel, and hopefully find us wherever finer podcasts are curated. We would also love to know, Jason, have you been able to get Alexa, oh, I said her name, to play the podcast? I said her name. I didn't, yeah, I guess I just blew it. Sorry. Queen um, A. Uh,
1: Queen A is funny that way because I have been able to play play that via the the uh, Amazon Echo, but it's not consistent. It is consistent on Google Home, right? Um, and uh, I have not tried on either Cortana or... Um, uh, Siri, although I don't think Siri plays podcasts, so mm-hmm. that, that would, would make that there, but that's a definitely an experiment that I'll, I'll, I'll keep track of.
0: It is. Alright, well we'd love to hear your feedback. Reach out to us on Twitter. You can use the EdTechSR hashtag and until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy and be safe and keep changing the world and using your tools for good and not for evil because we need a lot more of that in this world.